Hello, sports historians. The summer of COVID continues, as does the August of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon, uninterrupted video podcast. Karch Cry, Norm Bass, and Jimmy Lennon Jr. have been a great success. So now we move into Bert Uninterrupted. Yes, the chief medical officer to the Olympics and World Cup, Dr. Bert Mandelbaum, drops a whole lot of knowledge in this 130-minute interview, which was recorded on March 18th, right as our country went into stay-at-home orders. I'm sure you will enjoy. Here is Bert Uninterrupted. Well, again, thank you for being here. I was thinking about something, Bert. I remember we probably first met when Ava was in your your youngest daughter in middle school, maybe eighth grade, mm-hmm. and playing a little volleyball. And that's when I first about took over uh, the program over at Archer as the athletic director. And I remember um, be, um, both my wife, who coached volleyball, and then I coached basketball, always liked Ava not because she, just because she was a good kid and a good athlete and, and smart, but she was always so level-headed. She always seemed to keep things in perspective. And the bigger the moment got, the calmer she got. I wonder, where did she get that from? <laughs> oh, I would imagine she got it from her mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mom must have been quite an athlete. That's right. <laughs> I have a great Ava story. And it starts, she was our third child. And... Her older sister, Rachel, that you didn't really know, no, but, not as well. uh, but she was a, a great athlete, a recruited volleyball player from Archer. Okay. And our son, Jordan, who was an uh, all-state ESPN soccer player, soccer, recruited yeah. at Brown and mm-hmm. you know, academy player all the way through. And, and our third child was Ava, and we always thought that Ava was the non-athletic kid. And soccer, she was... Out of 14 kids, she was number 15. Okay. Uh, she was <laughs> Fair chasing enough. butterflies. And we were happy that she was happy and she was going to be the artist, the right. designer. And one day she came to me and said, you know, I'd like to practice volleyball. So in the garage, I put a, a line on the wall and she started hitting volleyballs. And okay. every day I'd come home and I, I hear the ball bouncing, the ball <laughs> bouncing. And despite this, as it was going on, she was always number 15 of 14 and would never play. She, wasn't, she just didn't have the athletic talent. And one day, the coach, we were down 15 to 8, put Ava in. Mm-hmm. And literally, over the next 15 minutes, she had 17 aces in a row. Oh and she aced out the team by herself. <laughs> and, it, and it was astonishing because was no one thought that she was capable of anything as an that athlete. Moment. And then people after that, she was all of maybe <laughs> 12 at the time. And they came up to her and they said, Ava, how did you do it? And she said, she looked at everybody, she says, I practiced. <laughs> uh-huh. And then from that moment on, she became what you know her as, yeah. the captain of the volleyball team. Isn't that some? The cooler kid with under emotion, and she became the athlete. Yeah, she was. She's always very calm under, under pressure. She played with my daughter, who's here sure. shooting with us today. Sure. Sienna, Bob, and Marley's are on the board today. But I always remind everybody, understand that life is a journey. Mm-hmm. There's no destination. That you never know, you never know where you're going to go with your child. If mm. you think they're an athlete, they can become the best athlete. Mm-hmm. Just because they go in fast and hard doesn't mean they're going to be the best athlete. 
So if we fast forward a few years, um, the next time I think we kind of picked up or whatever, and this was fascinating to me, is we had, um, in effect, a, a spate of injuries, five ACL tears within a short amount of time, uh, the girls over at, at Archer. And I remember you called me um, and you said, hey, we, we, we can fix this. And I was okay. And so um, the first thing you did was you convened all the coaches and gave your presentation, I think, that you had developed for FIFA soccer. And um, what was fascinating is these were coaches at the end of a hard day. These were off-campus coaches that drove in. So it wasn't easy for them, right, to, like, you know, have all their mental capacity there. And they sat in that room, and they were fascinated by your presentation. And I remember at that point going, oh, that's why he is who he is. It was, it was you were able to take a very complex idea and, and make it understandable for the people who then needed to implement it. It's a great presentation. Do you remember this? I do. I do. And uh, one of the most important things to recognize, and as a sports doctor, the only thing I've known is sport mm-hmm. uh, all my life. I, I was an athlete, grew up as an athlete. I went on to play college lacrosse and football for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to coach lacrosse so for me and that was at john johns hopkins Mm -hmm. and so for me sports is part of my continuum in everything i've done as a sports doctor as a sports coach as a sports athlete that's all i know right and so when i speak to coaches when i speak to the public for me it's all about sports all the time it's just approaching it from different sides with different tools Mm -hmm. the um I wanted to say at what we did between reintroducing the way they warmed up, a series of exercises that, that I think you're part of the team that developed, um, recognizing what we needed to do there, and then did it on a wider scale with an uh, open uh, clinic at Santa Monica College. But we went from the same spot of time. We didn't have a, another ACL injury for close to two years. And the other schools reported the same thing. So just to see that happened right in front of my eyes was fascinating. Now, if that wasn't enough, I'm going to make you <clears throat> prove to us that you are who you say you are, Bert. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to give you some uh, acronyms, and you just tell me what your role is with each organization so the people kind of sure. to get a scope. So with uh, the Federation of International Football, FIFA. Well, I served on their medical committee for uh, between 2007 and 2019, 12 years. Okay. MLS? Major League Soccer. I'm the Associate Chief Medical Officer, and I've been that way for MLS since 1996, its inception. Uh, MLB? Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. I was Director of Research under Bud Selig from 2011 to 2015. Special Olympics? Special Olympics. I was the Chief Medical Officer for the World Special Olympic Games in 2015, right here in Los Angeles. Love it. Uh, CONCACAF. CONCACAF, I served as the Chief Medical Officer, head of the Medical Committee from 2015 to 2019. The USOC? The USOC, I served from 2011 to 2015 on their medical network and now get ready for the Tokyo Olympic Games with U.S. Soccer and USOC. And how many Olympics have you attended as a uh, uh, attending medical advisor or doctor? F- five Olympics. Five Olympics. How many World Cups? 
I think including two women World Cups, I have eight World Cups total. So that's good. We're looking for something a little better to talk to you today. <laughs> <laughs> that's ridiculous. Okay, that's fantastic. All right. So what we what I was hoping to do is spend a little time talking what's certainly front and present on everybody's minds. Um, and then, but, you know, using it with our lens of through athletics. And I think I, I've always found it fascinating how much we learn through athletics in our culture and, um, and, and how those memories imprint. And right now those memories um, aren't happening because sports really aren't happening. So um, I think more information is better and we got the right guy. So can you discuss a little bit? Um, oh, and I wanted to preface one other thing. Your book, um, 2014, The Win Within, there's, there's two things that I really dug out of there. It's about just being human. It's a survival and, and the, of the fittest. And then it's also adapting to adversity. And we're certainly faced with that now. 100%, Denny. You know, this, the win within principles, capturing your victorious spirit, the name mm -hmm. of the book. And what my goal there was to empower each of us to discover that the win is within. And at this moment, at this very moment, that we're being challenged by this virus globally, each of us are faced with decisions about how we react to it, mm -hmm. how we survive, how we continue to be the survivors of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Adversity is the engine of unimagined opportunities. We learn that every day. Mm -hmm. We've learned that over and over with every patient we take care of, every athlete who has a problem. And we learn what life is about. And that's what that book was about. That's what I have learned. And I felt it was important to pass on my reflections and my learnings yeah. in that book. Absolutely. And, and these are adverse times. Um, so can you talk a little bit about when you first learned about the potential for this virus or, uh, you know, when this showed its, its head and then how your world was changed? I was intrigued in January as to what was happening in Wuhan, mm -hmm. China. Uh, watching that and over the years I have been intertwined with a lot of infectious diseases as as a physician mm -hmm. in many different ways in the 80s as a resident the first time in Baltimore really encountering the HIV virus mm -hmm. and the unknown and the sequential understanding leading to sequ sequential treatment effective treatment of converting the AIDS to a lethal disease to an effectively treated disease on all mm -hmm. fronts. And then hepatitis, as a surgeon, you always mm. worry about passages of hepatitis B and more recently hepatitis C to all of us. Mm -hmm. And then if you follow the years of my career, I mentioned two women's World Cups. Well, one of them was in 2003 when the World Cup was supposed to be in China mm. and we had the SARS epidemic and we brought it here to the U.S. five months later and we had a very successful World Cup mm -hmm. here. Uh, right. as a consequence of the SARS. And if you look at the sequence, picking out the MERS and then H1N1, mm -hmm. in 2009, we had a direct encounter with that. We had at a time I was speaking in San Jose, Costa Rica in August of 2009, mm -hmm. and there was an outbreak there where 300 of 500 people did wow. get H1N1. Wow. And... What happened was that H1N1 is the same virus or okay. similar virus to the one that killed 60 million people in 1918 yeah, the, worldwide. What was called the Spanish flu. was now called the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. And interesting, by just way of trivia, why that was called Spanish flu was yeah. it was wartime. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And there were countries that would say different things in the media one way or the other. The neutral country, Spain, <laughs> took, took the hit. <laughs> was the only one reporting the reality yeah, exactly. of their disease. And so they called it the Spanish uh, yeah, flu. Yeah, because they, they, they disproportion- they felt like a disproportionate. Exactly. That was terrible. Poor exactly. Guys. They, they came out and told the truth. So San Jose, Costa Rica, 2009 H1N1, 300, 500 people at this meeting I was speaking at contracted the disease, including mm. the president of Costa Rica. Whoa. It was August of 2009. I was on vacation after that with my family. And just so happens, I went back two days later. My daughter got sick. We didn't know what it was. Mm. And then I had to fly off for World Cup qualifiers in Mexico City as we're playing Mexico. We play the game. I'm flying away from Mexico City with Landon Donovan, one of our players. Next Mm -hmm. day, he gets H1N1. Whoa. Which started a very interesting and fascinating phenomenon because now our national team, which is a composite of players who go back to England and Germany and Spain and Italy, all over. Right. And so it became a a healthcare issue for the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that yours truly was the vector of that disease in that I, I didn't contract it, but I carried the virus. Okay. And I then was the vehicle and the vector for both Rachel and Landon and was really the subject of this investigation by the CDC. Wow. Now, take it to today, and it turns out, as of yesterday, the Chinese have just published a paper finding that 55% of the cases were converted from people who are asymptomatic mm. or they have no evidence of disease. You can't test positive and they transmit disease, much like the H1N1 that I did and I conveyed to Rachel, my daughter, and Landon Donovan. So, in fact, we learn lessons. And so I have been intertwined with these lessons in the last Olympics. We were concerned with Zika virus in Brazil. Yep. 2016. Yes. And then from the FIFA perspective, Ebola Mm. was a major subject that we were focused on in around 13 and 14. So for me, yes, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I fix knees. That's what I do. That's my day job. Mm -hmm. But as a sports physician who work with other organizations, I've always had my eye on what's happening. The Wuhan situation caught my eye. Mm -hmm. And every day I began to follow what was happening. And watching the peak and the escalation in China and South Korea was really intriguing for me to Mm -hmm. understand this. And I felt it was only a matter of time before it went global. Mm -hmm. And it did. I have several friends. Uh, I'm an Italophile and have several friends in in Italy. Uh, Even today, I heard from my good friend, Dr. Alberto Gobi, who this the previous 24 hours, they saw 500 Italians die Jeez. just yesterday. Jeez. And seeing this exponential escalation of this situation where they now have almost 3,000 deaths. Mm-hmm. A week ago, they had 1,500 deaths. So they mm-hmm. are going through, despite being cordoned off and quarantined and isolated, this disease continued to pass on. And, and for me, watching this uh, from afar and watching what our country was or was not doing, mm-hmm. I really feel as though we need to step up what we're doing uh, and how we're doing it here in the U.S. And we got to have to do our parts locally. 
I don't uh, remember in my lifetime anything like this. Um, and then just in what we talked about, the only thing that seemed to be on this big as a level might have been uh, the Spanish flu as far as affecting that much of the planet. Um, what did we do then that we can maybe learn from now as a... Well, we talk about social distancing, which we are doing. We talk about PPE, which is a preventative equipment, masks and gloves, mm-hmm. and understanding how to test people's temperatures and understanding whether or not they have fever. All of that can make sense. And mm-hmm. we constantly talk about this curve, this exponential increase in the curve. Mm-hmm. And we now talk about flattening the curve by doing everything we can do from the social distancing to the quarantines to the understanding who are the symptomatic who are the contagious is important and an imperative what we do Mm -hmm. uh, to some degree and I think finally in our lifetime no one has ever seen a quarantine and an isolation Mm -mm. like Mm -mm. this in our lives Uh, and we may never see it again in our life I I found it interesting that on the backside of the Spanish flu which I guess ended roughly 1920, 22 or something, but they had the 24 Paris games and that they still experienced some ramifications from holding those games. So I would imagine right in the beginning of this, holding the Olympic games this year causes a lot of consternation on a lot of people's parts. A tremendous amount of consternation. Uh, this, this week, actually on the 20th, the Olympic qualifiers for U.S. Mm-hmm. soccer was supposed to start. I'm part of that delegation. It's now canceled. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just received an email before I walked into this room from the USOC. And and that basically the Olympic Games is still ongoing, has not been canceled. Mm -hmm. That there'll be alternative measures that are taken at this time for further qualification. But people are holding tight at this moment. Interestingly enough... Japan has one of the lower instance, instances of, okay. of of the virus at the present, uh, where they're hovering about five per million, and they have not seen it escalate in Japan. The, it brings up an interesting point because Japan has said some of the right things, but I don't know that the messaging has, has come through completely. It's It's easy to look at the side that Japan is spending maybe $30 billion dollars on hosting these games and so they would certainly want to have the game so I think one of the things I wanted to unpack was I don't think there's any delaying by any amount of time the games it has too many ramifications down road so it's either a cancel or a go is that probably accurate I'm not sure about that uh, and when I say that I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there are issues. We have to figure out. You can't have games unless you have some qualification method, which we're not going to have at this Maybe point. Maybe half the we're, field, 60% we're not of the field is qualified? It's going to have yeah. to be in some way. Those are going to have to happen in a weekend. A, mm. um, it would have to happen in July. Um, you know, there won't be the long periods of time sure. of training. Business, not at usual. But I don't know how the games could be pushed back or not. It, it seemingly would be difficult and yeah. awkward. Uh, but I don't know enough about those logistics there in Tokyo and the local organizing committee to comment about that. I think mm-hmm. um, it seems as though it would be challenging and difficult, but I don't know enough about those logistics. 
Well, some of the, you know, they're, when they came out, I think they just had a meeting um, two days ago or three days ago. And they came out and said something like, we're fully committed. Uh, there's no need for drastic decisions now. And, and I think that was perceived by some of the athletes as like they weren't looking out for them. You know, like the, one, of their, one of the athletes on the commission uh, is Haley Wickenheiser and said something like, you know, what about the state of humanity? Um, how about we don't know what's going to happen in the next 24 hours, let alone the next three months? So it, there's always been this, the hierarchy of those that are running sport and the athletes. And now you throw this into the middle of it, especially with social media, and it seems like a very difficult something that's very difficult to control. Well, first off, let's step back and look at Olympic history. Mm -hmm. I think your question is a deep and very thoughtful one and has to be answered in the context of history. Yep. If we look at the Olympic Games, started in 776 BC in Olympia. That's how it all started. Mm -hmm. It was only men, no women. So it was geopolitically incorrect at that time. <laughs> right. I didn't see the hashtag. You didn't see the hashtag, but geopolitically incorrect. Right. In fact, it was nude men, no women, and convicts, convicts and, and women were barred from competition. And then we know and we follow the Olympics through a time around Christ and then after. And then we saw the earthquake, and what happened was the Romans came in. And because, and this is the geopolitical crisis at that time. Mm -hmm. It was faced that, and it was Christian, and then saying that this was paganism. And Christian, paganism, conflict right there. Right there, and then it was the stopping of the Olympic Games from 400 yeah, like a thousand years A.D. Ago. until this that. Frenchman came forward, Baron de Coubertin, mm -hmm. and the founder of the modern Olympic Games came forward. Mm -hmm. And then we started Olympic Games, and we went through... Uh, we had uh, Olympic Games. First, women were not, it wasn't politically mm -mm. correct. Archery and swimming, they got involved. And we saw the games of the 20s, and we think about some of the highlights of the 20s, the Harold Abrams, the Chariots of Fire, sure. the 32 games, and the bringing on of the women. And the 36. Jesse Owens. It was the Jesse Owens, the games in Berlin, and then sure. 40, the games not being contested. So 40, 44. Yeah. And then, then we go after we conduct the Olympic Games and we come to 84 and we get into more politics with the Russians and they yep. don't participate. And then we see the miracle on ice and it brings us to where we are today in how the context of humanity and the Olympic Games really is brought out. The sport of life mm -hmm. and the life right. of sport intersect right there. Mm -hmm. And here we are, it's a, it's a long answer to your question about the Tokyo Olympic Games. But inherent in this history that the games always are fraught with geopolitics. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's about a virus and it's about people's health and well-being and humanity being focused upon as our highest priority. And so we as leaders have to keep that in context in mind in every decision. I think from my translation of what's come out at this point is that it may be premature to make that decision. It may be very well the decision July 24th to not have people congregate at any yeah. Olympic Games. But for today, I think the spirit of the Games was 
carry on as best we can under the challenging environment. Stay safe, be isolated, train as you may. And even though we have these challenges like there have been in the past, the games can potentially go on. I don't know that there's an answer right now. There's certainly a question, and we want to have an answer to that question today in March, what happens four months from now. Right. Uh, but I think what the leaders are saying, uh, stay healthy, let's do the best for the athlete, and let's not make a decision today as of this time. I guess that's where it was lost in the messaging was it sounded like they're, we're going forward instead of, uh, okay, two organizations I'm, I've been involved with. One is the AAU, or I'm still involved with, and the CIF I was, right? Both of those basically said, okay, pump on the brakes. We'll get back to you in the first week of April and see where we are. And it didn't sound like the IOC said that. They said, we're moving forward. And I think that's the perception that came out because even people in Japan that pushed back against that that had political positions within the sport were asked to publicly apologize and stay on point. And I get the stay on point. That makes sense. It just seems that this is causing external. Right. I, I would say for, for the moment, cooler heads prevail. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the reality today that we're dealing with. Yeah. We've had a lot of athletes who tested positive. Yesterday we learned right. about Kevin Durant and three of his teammates. That's right. You go to Europe and you have players from Sampdoria, players from Chelsea, coaches, doctors, Everybody who is testing positive in, in Germany, in England, in Italy, in Spain. So right now we have ubiquitous spread okay. at the moment. And we're just learning. We're trying to figure everything out, what the patterns are. So for today, it's about being safe and doing the right thing mm -hmm. and not conducting any sporting events, no practice, keeping people isolated and quarantined. That's the word of the day. And I would say if I were answering the question for the USOC, today we're focused on maintaining the highest level of health prevention mm -hmm. of this pandemic globally. We will do anything in our power to make it as safe and as effective as the treatments can be today. And let's deal with the decision tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow. Absolutely. That's how I would say it. What did um, what instructions were you given, for instance, in in Rio as it related to the um, the Zika virus? Like, did they was there? How did they have you do your job, considering what may or may not happen? You know, Zika virus was a very different type of of beast, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, it it affects pregnant women uh, and it affects the development of the fetus. Mm -hmm. um, and and in reality. Um, it's, it's, it's a different level of public health in addressing the nature okay. of this particular virus. Uh, everything from safe sex and abstaining from sex were the key treatment interventions at those times. At those times. And uh, because it wasn't going to be healthy males or unpregnant women who we would know would get and contract that disease. So the whole different. approach there in Brazil... Uh, in Rio was very different because of the peculiarities and the specificities of that virus. What would you anticipate if the games were to go forward and were like, how, how does, how does the messaging work to you um, from whether it's IOC or the LOC would, was that who would give you instruction on, on how to handle it? You're bringing your medical um, knowledge to the, to, to it. 
how, how does the whole how does that all roll down to you? Well, or roll up to you. You know, the way it works for the Olympic Games is you have the International Olympic Games, sure. and then you have the various federations. Mm -hmm. uh, run each of their sports, yeah. Yes, right. And you have the international uh, feder confederations uh, that you have for each of the sports. Uh, for us, I work with U.S. soccer. So you have U.S. soccer working directly with the U.S. OC. Uh, and I know they have been working very closely together. U.S. soccer has been working with Major League Soccer and other leagues. Mm -hmm. And if you notice what happened here uh, in the last few weeks was as soon as we had Rudy Gobert test mm -hmm. positive NBA. before that, we were talking about who should go where, whether or not the media can go into the locker room, right. whether or not we should play games without crowds. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, real quickly, we canceled oh. everything. We canceled training, we canceled games, we canceled participation in the NCAAs, and again, the March Madness, which is just amazing to, to see that we've done all of that with a, with a keystroke. Which, in looking at it now, we're act, I mean, those were good decisions, and we see, because we see even with canceling that then what the spread was, if you just look at your NBA model. Um, so, so soccer between MLS didn't even get started yet. They were just, what, in training camp? Oh, they did. We they were, th got we're three games oh, that's into right. the season. Three games in. We were three yeah. games into the season in full training mode. And the last game we had, the weekend before that's last, right. yeah. uh, was was played. There was a lot of discussion about uh, fans and screening fans and whether or not media should come into the locker room. And subsequent to that, uh, it all blew up with a positive test and how, how did you get the message did that did it was there email or did the commissioner get to you did each club make their own decisions well again there have been so many conference calls uh, in the <laughs> last imagine. two weeks about coronavirus and emails uh, that went on between u.s soccer major league soccer wow. the team uh, details and as this evolved and again when you when you first go back to the first question you go back to Wuhan when mm. everybody was just trying to figure that out and and then you want even to just go back into the reports just two weeks ago our president was actually saying this was a hoax mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and conveyed that which in fact created a bigger problem, mm -hmm. not not to be funny no, or even too critical, but it created an anarchy in America. Yeah, to have our president of the United States laugh and at a pep rally, mm -hmm. basically disparage the nature of the work of our doctors mm -hmm. and Anthony Fauci and the director of HHS and our Surgeon General, mm -hmm. who are saying, "Hold on, we have a big problem here." And um, that, that even created a bigger problem. And I think the legacy of this moment for me is that negativity and laughing and the smugness for me mm. was really hard to observe. Hard to give a guy a 10 when he does that. It's hard to give anybody <laughs> the respect because it just swings in the face of evilness and being distracted to not knowing what the reality is in this situation. If you had to speculate, is there going to be any sports that have an easier way of coming back in? Do they 
all come back in at the same time because there's a collection of thought at the highest levels that it's safe for fans to congregate or these players to play. What, like what, what's that look like w- when eventually it turns over? You know, the, all those phone calls and conference calls and emails I talked about, mm-hmm. I think we're going to have to quadruple those mm. uh, because it's going to be we're going to have to figure that out. Mm. Um, it really depends on the impact of what happens in the next two weeks. If we could flatten that curve, I, see. I think the impact of the intensity and severity of this pandemic as we see it today and having our tools, and if it isn't quite realized like it is in Italy, um, we'll have one set of recommendations and one curve of re-escalation. So I think at this point, I think we have to be guarded with our interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the best thing about where we are today, we're all isolated, we're all looking at each other like, what do we do now? Yeah. And it's like we've never been before. It's, it's, it, 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 it truly is the word, surreal. Mm-hmm. That said, it's the best and right thing for this moment. Mm-hmm. As we continue to watch the World Health Organization's numbers and worldometers and watch those numbers of cases around the world, where it's going and, and how it's getting there, and the efficacy of our measures I think we'll be able to make a judgment what we do. We don't know what to do in terms of tomorrow Mm -hmm. and the next day and the next day. So we're just approximating. We're saying for two weeks we're going to do this. But it may be many more days because if we're still at the same point and this is still gaining intensity Mm. and spread the way we think it may, and it's going to be confounded by the fact that we now finally have testing devices Mm -hmm. uh, that aren't going to be four to five days. It's going to be a matter of hours in terms of results. We're going to see more cases. And and that's going to freak some people out, but but that's to be expected. To be expected. But then we could get a a better sense of the reality of what's happening. Now, remember, this nemesis, this virus, Mm -hmm. is not only what we know it is, is Mm COVID-19, but it also has a tremendous potential to mutate. Now, what does a mutation of a virus mean? It means that that virus has the capability of coming in as A and coming out as D. It also has the meaning that it can replicate twice, four, six times as fast as it did previously. It also means that it can infect people in a different way than the previous mutated virus affected people. So there's an unknown there as well. And, And again... All of us have to do what we're doing as best as we can. Life has to go on. Uh, but we, we have to react together in a collaborative way, and it's what I call the three Ps. Okay. We have to be prepared, mm-hmm. which means that we have to have the tools, the technique, the hardware, and the software of, of managing this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Two, we have to have preparedness, which means that We've got to know how and where we can find the test. There's hmm. a drive-by place right around the corner, 1811 Wilshire, that my wife is running. Okay. And then we know they're out there and cars drive by. They have people in the appropriate PPE, the protective mm-hmm. equipment. They're doing the test, the preparedness. What are we going to do if we're overrun with cases? We have to have enough ventilators and which mm. hospital is doing what and how we identify who should stay home and who needs to come in the hospital. And that's what we call preparedness. And the third P 
It's about perspective. Hmm. We have to have perspective and to know that tonight will exist for all of us. 99.9% of us. That there's going to be enough food and water. Right. And that we're going to be around our family as best we can today. And and we'll look at tomorrow with a, more of a critical eye. So perspective, the third P, is really key. I thought the third P was going to be pizza. It could be pizza tonight. I think that's what we're doing is uh, we're ordering takeout all the time because it's important. That's another very interesting issue is the supply chain for the markets is very different than for the restaurants. The restaurants have plenty of food because their supply chain is different than Mm -hmm. the markets. So uh, you can get from Instacart and all these online places as well as get from our local restaurants because they have plenty of food. One of the uh, perspectives that many of us have is is popular culture, whether that's television or or film. Uh, film that's like uptick lately is Contagion, which was about nine ten years ago, and dealt with it's similar. There's a lot of similarities. The way we view WHO or the CDC or those groups and how they interact, do you think they're accurate, accurately portrayed for the most part? Like, do we have a perspective on how those groups work or I'm, I'm just curious what it's like to be closer to how they solve these unbelievably complex problems. Well, I think that the World Health Organization, by the way, it, it lives in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people there who I call and, and the people who work at the Centers for Disease Control, which is in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and the World Health Organization are probably the most idealistic people in healthcare. Okay, They were... Most of them were motivated when they're a high school student by the stories of previous epidemics, of understanding the relationships to bacteria and virus and fungi to disease. So people like Louis Pasteur, who are the icons of infectious disease and understanding these issues, had, had more to do with how American and all other medicine has been affected. Mm-hmm. When you look at the major iconic changes in medicine, in the late 1800s, to think about the sterile Robert Joseph Lister from Glasgow giving us a sterile operating room, mm-hmm. uh, Fleming giving us the discovery of, of antibiotics in the 30s, that these are the major changes, and you have people that work in these organizations that were inspired, inspired by them, and their aspirations were to be part of organizations like that. So when you see and you work with these folks, you realize they're extremely passionate mm-hmm. and extremely professional about understanding what the context is of these epidemics, of these pandemics, mm. the, how they think in terms of the public health issues, how they think in terms of understanding how to solve the problems, vaccines, mm-hmm. um, and all of those that are extremely important in understanding disease. Now, that said, you have that segment, you have those recommendations, but what percentage of our public truly gets a flu vaccine? And we have 30 million people in America getting the flu every year. Mm-hmm. So what, what percentage of the public really gets them? It's, it's really in, in the lower <laughs> numbers. It's not, not at 90%. Jeez. So that's what I say. This is a, an ever-evolving field, but we have these professionals running these organizations yeah. And they do their best. They're built for dealing with crisis. The one of the um, I don't know if it's a misperception or just a perception that the heat or the, you know the warming of the climate <clears throat> would help suppress uh, a virus. 
but then I've also heard that we don't know because we've never seen this before and it could very easily adapt to a warmer climate. Is that a thing? Um, it, it could be. You know, when you first look at this and you look at 200 countries that are represented on the Worldometer website, mm-hmm. y- you see at the top there's China and Italy, Spain, you know, upper latitudes countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wonder, uh, although we don't know statistics to actually correlate or conclude that, in fact, there's a direct association between latitude and disease exposure and deaths, et cetera. Um, you raise those questions, and I think over time we'll learn that mm. and we'll see those statistics. Okay. At this time, I don't think people could make those conclusions. And, you know, when you look at the list, you find St. Lucia and the Grenadines and, yeah. and Bolivia down at the bottom, and you wonder, because they're in full summer, uh, that probably has something to do with it, but I, I'm not so sure. What do you think their parameters will be upon return? Um, I mean, I know I'm asking you to speculate on a lot of things that we don't know, but <clears throat> would there be some some kind of protocol that all of your athletes have to be um, tested f- free of the virus for a certain amount of time? What if somebody did carry the virus? How, how long is, is that period? It seems really complex and, and, and difficult to get to the point where NBA is good to go, MLS good to go, let alone the Olympics. It seems like there'd be a lot of hurdles. There are. Um, Again, one of my other phone calls I made before I jumped back into the room was another team physician who contracted the virus. Mm. He's at home. He's fine. Uh, He's not very sick. In fact, he just told me he got back from a run. Hmm. Um, He snuck out for a run, uh, but he continues to be quarantined. Uh, He's in day eight of his quarantine. He's got six more days. But one of the theories... are that if he has the disease, he carries the antibodies and that he may be the one who is is not able to carry or infect anybody else despite the fact that he ran the course of the disease. Now, that's theoretical Mm -hmm. uh, because we don't know. We talked a few minutes ago about these mutations. Mm -hmm. And do do, do our antibodies account for all those mutations? I don't know. And I don't know that anybody truly has those answers at this time. Mm. If we believed that, in fact, those of us who've got the disease, survived the disease, came out the other side, then we should be taking their blood and using the antibodies in some way of isolating those antibodies and giving them back to people. (laughs) Um, In Italy, they're raising questions of how to do that. And I think a lot of the scientists are figuring that out right as we speak. And then at some point, you know, your person's identity, civil rights, and those things are going to come into play. So that's going to be, you know, that's going to be some kind of difficulty. But obviously, it's a bigger problem for all of us. I was wondering, do you think the location of the Olympic Games would have anything to do with the decision to, to return or to have the, have the Olympics move forward? A location in the world if it was in i mean that's a pretty stable government and economy there so it seems like if there were any kind of outbreak that got away that would be one place that would do well but then people are going to say it's in asia so is that an issue um if it was in a wealthier country versus a you know country that isn't 
Do you think that's going to have anything to do with it? I don't think there's any bearing uh, with respect to the questions you ask. And the reason why I say that is it's a place to hold, it's a venue that's going to hold the Olympics. What's the bigger concern? The 211 countries or more that are represented by those delegations, by these people, all congregating. And imagine if those Olympic Games were in three or four weeks and we had Italy represented and, mm-hmm. and Korea, South Korea, and they bring their microbes to the Olympics, mm-hmm. it would create a devastating mm. epidemic in and of itself. And that's one of the interesting things about the recent Chinese study that just came out. Interestingly enough, when this all started in Wuhan, it was during the Lunar New Year, the Chinese New Year. Okay. And what happens, the first part of the study was to actually look at the travel behaviors that the Chinese had done in the previous years to get an understanding of the numerator and the denominator to understand how they change travel and how they affect the disease. So the first thing they did was shut down the travel. And, and that was the first treatment. No traveling within, within China or coming from without. Okay. It was it was President Trump who subsequently listened to what the Chinese were saying. They said, well, we're not going to fly there now. Well, the answer was they shut it down first. Yeah. <clears throat> not only the people coming into China, but the people traveling within China. Did Do you, you trust the information that came out of China initially? Do you, is there something to the idea that they weren't releasing accurate numbers? I, I don't know. Um on face value, yes, I have to fi- have to trust those mm-hmm. numbers to some degree. Um, I've been with the ministers of health of China, and and I'd like to believe that the purpose of the minister of health is to to keep the people healthy. Uh, that said, in my question, as we had dinner in the People's Hall of China <laughs> at that time, was really focused on, and this was in two thousand was focused on why is it that we see everybody focused on Eastern medicine in China, yet all the leaders have Western medicine clinics. Okay. And he answered very honestly, and he said, well, we have a lot of people here. We have 1.5 billion people, and we, don't, we didn't have the money with Mao mm-hmm. after the late 40s. So we had to keep people happy, and we had to do what was not only politically correct, but was feasible under those circumstances when you're managing 1.5 million people. So they talked about herbs and massages and and things like that, part of Eastern medicine. And when it came to leaders, they understand their functionality of Western medicine. So that said, I think the the sense of realities, and I spent a month in Beijing for the Olympics there in 2008, the realities are a little bit different. Mm Mm-hmm. But on face value, we have to trust what we what we get at this point. Is there an advantage, I would imagine, I don't know, is there an advantage to having a more authoritative system of government and, and an ability to control the populace? Because when you look at like what, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of trust that has to happen here, whether it's San Francisco or whatever city, that they'll self-quarantine, they'll stay within a certain area. There's just, we, you know, there's just not the ability to enact, I mean, to enforce all of these you know, I think it's uh, we have our, one of our greatest natural resources in this country is our mind. Mm-hmm. And we have tremendously smart academic people, 
scientific people and clinicians. And we have great organizations from the FDA, uh, from the NIH, from Human Health Services. So you've got this tremendous focal number of people who are experts in this area, the CDC as well. And I were the president. I would convene those people. Mm -hmm. And every day in the lower corner of of the computer would be a news conference at 8 a.m. and a map. Here we are. This is what we're doing in San Francisco. This is what we're doing in Michigan. This is what we're doing in Florida. This is what you don't need to do. You have to stay home. You need to be quarantined. We've got more testing. There'll be 400 more tests in Michigan and 200 more in Amarillo, Texas. And give people a sense that there is someone at the wheel of the 747. There's a structure in place. There's, we're going to get <clears throat> similar. We're going to get information each day. has to do with X, Y, right. and Z. And that speaks to the third P that we talked about, giving people perspective. Mm-hmm. Helping people not panic. I get calls every day from people I know. I my chest hurts, or this is going on. Do I have COVID nineteen? <laughs> and it's first about perspective. No, mm-hmm. you don't. It's okay. We're going to be okay here. Or if you are sick, this is what you need to do. That's what you need to do. You know, um, all generations have been faced with their challenges. Some lesser than others. Talk about the greatest generation. Um, all the way moving forward, it's this, it's, this seems to be the challenge. I mean, that's certainly my kids, your kids age. This is their, this is their big challenge. What can you maybe roadmap it to the end, just for having a good positive vision of how this might play itself out for the best, for the best in this situation? Well, I think that we play this thing out and we learn about how the game changes here. We're in the end of the first quarter right now. Okay. So the game's going to change and it's going to change in intensity and detail. However, it shifts up and down. We're going to be well positioned in terms of a game plan as we have now shut down everything we're doing. Basically mm-hmm. we're isolating ourselves and we are flattening that curve mm-hmm. better than testing. Our big problem as we head into the second half, the third quarter, that we really have is the economics of it all. Yeah. As we go into April, uh, I think that people are working just at the edge of their ability to pay their mortgage, their rent. Uh, I think that fortunately the government is kicking in mm-hmm. some type of aid. Um, we like the Yang approach where we give everybody a thousand dollars. It's going to take the edge off. It's going to be good for everybody. And then we can take a deep breath as we go into the fourth quarter here. Then it's going to be the reality of how do we get back to the new, new. And I think what I forecast society is going to look much different by the end of the fourth quarter. How We're so? going to spend our lives differently. We're not going to get on cruise ships for the next few years. Okay. We're going to fly 50 or 80% less than we did before. Those of us who travel around the world like this, like a shuttle between here and London, we're not going to have that as much as we did before. We're going to conduct meetings on WebEx and Zoom and GoToMeeting. We're going to think about how we do things better in our local environments. 
Mm. We're going to have to figure out how to pay for the deficits that we're going to be faced with. Mm. And I think we're going to be much more serious of how to respond to those next challenges, which are going to be what we can do, what we should do, and most importantly, how we deal with the economics and the realities around that going forward as we get into the last minutes of the game here. Yeah. I like how you broke it down into quarters like that. It actually makes it a little more, for those of us who are sports-minded, makes it more thinkable. Makes well, more everybody, the human mind thinks in steps. <laughs> when challenged with when challenged with things that seem insurmountable, it was Winston Churchill that gave us the concept of believernomics, we called it mm-hmm. at that time. Believernomics. They were being bombed every night. And he had to face the population, the British population, and inspire them to have perspective and how to understand it. Break it down. Let's get through tonight. And we'll deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. And believernomics is the optimism that even in the most dire of circumstances, we must all have perspective. There's going to be opportunities for success. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be that adversity. But if we do the right things, we work as a team. Remember, the team is together. Everyone achieves more. And if we do that as a society, we're going to find things that we thought were scarce, such as money and other things or resources. It will become more abundant. And I think that's the undiscovered here. That's the unimagined opportunities that's our ray of hope going forward okay i got hope that's good i always have hope keep it up you know one of the um things uh that you when you were you were talking about um considering it within quarters and stuff uh i interviewed craig impleman and he's coach wooden's grandson-in-law Sure. The coach underneath sure. stuff. So he, he he brought over and he started to talk about that sixty eight team that had lost in the Astrodome game. Mm-hmm. And that was with Lou Alcindor and and that team. And so um it was the only time <clears throat> in the semifinals when they met him in the semifinals, because that was regular season, they met him in the semifinals. And it was the only time Coach Wooden changed his game plan. Instead of that two two one press, he went to like a diamond and one kind of configuration and they blew out these guys that had beat them easily. And I thought, wow, even coach adjusted at some point. And that's what's required of us now is to to look at this and adjust. And adjust and adjust. And, and there's one story to end these stories that really, really focuses the efforts that we need to make. It was 2010, mm-hmm. and we were playing the World Cup in South Africa. Mm. We're playing Algeria. We... We played and we're in a situation where if we lose or tie, we go home. 90 minutes into the game, the score is 0-0 against Algeria. The ball is kicked. Tim Howard makes the save. We're now in the 91st minute. Tim Howard looks around and he sees one player that he's looking for, Landon Donovan. He finds him and the ball gets distributed to Landon Donovan. Landon Donovan at that one moment has two players on his back heels. And Landon Donovan in his trademark moment takes the ball and kicks it out in front. And he knows that in the 90th minute he's just one step faster than these other two. And he runs away from those two other players, comes down the field. He crosses the ball and Clint Dempsey is there. A shot is taken 
And the shot is saved, but the ball presents itself as Landon continue his run down to the six yard, and the ball is right in front of him where he kicks the ball and puts it back of the net. It's that 91st optimism that won the game that not only did we win the game, but we won the group. In that one moment, that 91st minute, he was able to go from we lost, we're bottom, to the top of the group. I call that 91st minute optimism. I had that kind of optimism when I brought both of my kids in various times to you at their point where they were <clears throat> less than optimistic because that knee isn't working. And what they know isn't what they know anymore. And just your way of making them feel comfortable, letting them know they're in good hands. Like this is, we're going to, everything's going to move forward from here. And I would do the same. I kind of took that from you to whenever athletes that I was in charge of got hurt. I'd say, okay, moving forward now, everything's going to get better. There's not, every day is not going to be perfect, but it's going to be challenges, but it's going to get better. And I got that um, kind of, Optimism from you. Born um, bird in uh, Long Island or New yes. York? In, in the, New York, in, yes. In the city? Or in the uh, I brought up, uh, born in New York City and brought up on Long Island, yes. And so um, parents, uh, jobs, what did they do? My dad uh, was a pharmacist. Uh -huh. He's still living at 95. And my mom, wow. a nurse, still living at 93. Wow. They're one of the few That's people fortunate. in their 71st year of marriage. Holy moly. How many of those do you know? Not many. That's Not first, many. I think. <laughs> That's right. Any siblings? Older brother. Uh-huh. Black sheep of the family. He's an attorney. Okay. Uh, and younger sister <laughs> in the entertainment industry. Okay. So you were um, you're sharing a great story when you are young earlier before we started the interview. And I'd love for you to share that again about um, seeing, seeing your sports hero, Mickey Mantle. Um, so would you have been, at the time, living in Long Island, and then you said something about your dad would take you on, on a particular night, but would that be that drive to the Bronx? Yes, wow. exactly. Or, you know, or, did you, or did you jump on the subway? You know, that's, it always interests me. I, I, I just Those initial sports stories, when you see your first stadium or you see your first ballpark, there's something about it. You know, as we were talking about, Denny, I, I was a kid who was a number seven. As I said, it started as an athlete, mm -hmm. continues to be an athlete. And I was that number seven kid. You know, I love Mickey Mantle. Those that were 24 who were the Willie Mays kids, but I was sure. the number seven. It was the number I wore in everything I do. And my dad would take me to baseball games. I was nine years old. And at the time, Mickey Mantle was playing right field. And he was obviously an iconic player, but he had amazing impact on me. And we would have tickets just behind the home team's dugout. But I would walk all by myself, and I loved going on a Wednesday night because those evenings in April were cool and somewhat misty. People wouldn't come out to the games, and the Yankees at that time weren't doing very well. Mm -hmm. And I would sit there with my chin perched on the fence, and I would st stare at Mickey every move he would make. Every time he would move to the left, run to the right, he'd call. He'd, and I would do the same things. And I remember those moves time after time. And in one moment, Mel Stottlemyre was pitching. And he was being hit pretty hard. I remember that. And they were down 4-0 at the moment. And they decided to make a change. And uh, Casey Stengel comes out and <laughs> changed Mel Stottlemyre. And, and Mickey Mantle walks over to me 
with my chin on the fence of the right That's field fence, and he brushes against me, and his big forearm with that red hair, large forearms with actually tar and smelling. I could smell the nicotine from his chewing tobacco Man. and the moisture in his wool uniform rubbing against my arm. Today, I remember it like it was yesterday. And that one moment, that Mickey moment, inspired me so much. As I said, it started with sports. It continues to be sports. There could be some concepts, some techniques, some technology in between, but it's always about sports. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky that when I worked for Bud Selig and people referred to me as a soccer doc, but I talked about this, and next thing you know, I was given the the jersey, the original jersey awesome. of Mickey Mantle, and it hangs in our offices here. Love it. Um, so you're you're young, growing up on Long Island, and is that where you got your um, affection and love of the sea? Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, I grew up as a lifeguard. I spent six summers as an ocean lifeguard, and for me, I learned how to dive and scuba dive and fish and and uh, learn the love of the sea and and maintain that as my hobby today. And one of those hobbies includes uh, in, includes swimming with the sharks. I do, I do. <laughs> so I, you... I have this. I've always had since my teenage years a fascination with sharks, and in the last twenty years, I spent a lot of time in cages, out of cages, with large sharks, small sharks, videoing and photographing sharks. When is the right time to come out of the cage? How do you know this? You just. <laughs> Well, it's like everything else. You have to know the behaviors of, of these sharks. Okay. You have to know what they do when they have predatory reflexes. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that these sharks, when we dive at Guadalupe Island off of Mexico, some 250 miles from Ensenada, we know that these white sharks that average between 12 and 18 feet, mm-hmm. uh, that they always hunt from below. And if we stay above the cage, if we're in or out, they don't really see us or understand that we're nothing more than the cage. Okay. And so we could come out of the cage because <laughs> they, wow. don't, they don't come down and hunt. They go, always go up to hunt. Wow. Um, Peter Benchley, he wrote the book Jaws in 74, but he, <clears throat> I think the idea came from in Long Island, uh, like 10 years previous to that, like 64 or something, a massive great white was, was, was caught, right? Like 4,500-pound Great well, white or something. Do you know that story? Yeah, the story was, in fact, this was part of my fascination as a teenager. I read all those stories. Mm. And it actually was in New Jersey um, okay. that the shark had gone up the river and attacked young oh, wow. boys. And and that was part of the stories oh, upon wow. which Jaws was written. And Peter Bensley. I see. Yeah. So uh, it, it, was, it was going up the river, um, and that's where really... So you, so you read these stories about the boys getting yes. bitten, and then yeah. you end up I, taking I, I was a weird kid that I would have books <laughs> on all the shark attacks in the world, I love it. Uh, all the shark species. I had this weird hobby. My mother always complained I would not want to read any other books other than books about <laughs> sharks or fish or any of the like. What uh, was your first entry into um, like playing on a team in, in athletics? What was my first injury? En- entry. Oh, entry. Yeah. Um, you know, I played uh, when I was uh, younger. I played baseball in, baseball. in in my teen years, and that was mm-hmm. a big sport. And then, being from Long Island, I I really began to play lacrosse, lacrosse. and football, which yeah. were my primary sports. Um, 
who um I always ask this question to my guests because I'm always interested. Was there somebody who kind of identified you, that saw some promise in you, uh, was a good mentor when you were I, a youngster? I, I, I've been blessed. I, I've had some amazing mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, uh, mentors really underscore my life mm. all the way through. Uh, when I was young, I had some hard but great coaches that taught me about uh, no sniffling. <laughs> that there's no easy part of life when we got a lot of kicks in the butt. And mm-hmm. it was a, a tough love, I would yeah. say. Right. Um, their I names, had those coaches. <laughs> their names were McNamara and Goldmere. Um, but they kicked our butt and they got the most out of us. But it really taught me the empowerment themes. Mm. One of my biggest mentors that I really identify that had an impact in my lives is, was JFK. Mm. John Fitzgerald Kennedy and... That famous speech, although I don't really remember it as a young child, mm-hmm. it's not what your country can do for you. It's what you can do right. for your country. Those empowerment themes were things that myself and people around me were brought up with. Yeah, And I carried that to work ethic through school and in college and, and after college. And then you ask about mentors. I, I had a great mentor at Johns Hopkins by the name of Bob Scott. Bob Scott, who was... Athletic director there? He became the athletic director after being a great coach, who was also a philosopher Hmm. and really was extremely inspirational for me uh, and a big mentor. Uh, For me in in medicine, there have been many, but my other major mentor when I came and did my fellowship at UCLA... Which I find fascinating that... I had a magical moment uh, the very first day uh, as a sports medicine fellow. I walked to Pauley Pavilion. I walked down the steps, and just to my right standing there is Coach Wooden. And Coach Wooden looked. This is mid-'80s. This is 1985. Okay. He hasn't been coaching for seven years. years or something, yeah. For seven years. He finished coaching in 78. And Coach looked at me, and I looked at him, and the first thing he did to me was, Give me the finger. Come on over, son. He says, sit down because on the court, the basketball team was practicing at that moment. The coach was Walt Hazard. Uh And Walt Hazard had a distinctive way of coaching. He would sit in about the 10th row of the bleachers with his arms at his side (laughs) and a cigarette in his mouth. (laughs) And the first thing Coach Wooden (laughs) said to me was, as I introduced myself, I know who you are. And I said, Coach, um, I'm the fellow. He said, I know who you are. But he says, the first thing I want to ask you is, what is that guy doing over there? <laughs> and I looked at him and I looked back and I, 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 I said to myself, oh, here I am. I have my first trick question. And I said, Coach, he's coaching. God, it's not coaching. You can't coach from the 12th row with a cigarette in your mouth. And that started a I relationship. Coach Wood had, had his own problems when he was coaching Walt Hazard, and now he's going, what the heck, buddy? You're the same guy. I was, worked, I was trying to work on this with you. That can't be coaching. <laughs> you can't coach from the 10th row <laughs> with a cigarette in your mouth. And, and that started a long-term relationship. And um, through my fellowship, through my years working at UCLA, uh, I had this relationship with Coach. And every year I would – meet with him until the year he passed away where I'd bring residents and fellows to remind them 
of how impactful this icon was to sport? Um, it's something I always <clears throat> used in coaching. And uh, I never really had the chance uh, to meet him until later in life, but he was always so much a part of my life through his books, through just growing up and being enamored with that team, watching it on KTLA that I got to grow up with. You know, your Mickey Mantle was, interestingly enough, like my John Wooden because I was always fascinated that same coach was there every year and they won the championship every year. He was great. Now, speaking of winning championships, I got to back up for just a second. Well, you one went, second before yes, we get off of Coach Wooden, I have to tell you my very last moment with Coach. Uh, we had dinner out in the valley. Uh, we would pick him up, bring him in. He was in a wheelchair at the time. Mm. And about that time, he wrote a book. Uh, it was called For Children. It's called Inches and Miles. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen it. And maybe Sienna has mm -hmm. read it. Read it to them. But for me, one of the most moving moments of my life was listening to Coach Wooden in a wheelchair with a basketball on his lap and with a book in front of him would read poetry to the group we assembled there in this restaurant wow. with my residents, with our fellows, with other doctors, reading the poetry from Inches and Miles. Wow. And so that, that image, that moment was just such an inspirational moment for me. He never stopped giving. Never stopped giving. Right he up until the, the last second, he was trying to get better, too. Right. And he was a poet, and people say, you know, Dr. Burt, you're a philosopher. And I said, I know nothing but, because that's what I've been taught. The lessons that we've been imbued upon uh, are come with the philosophy of life. And as I said, the intersection of the sport, sport of life and the, and the life, life of sport. Life of sport. Um, you know, I'd heard that. Uh, I think I listened to you on a different podcast or something. But then as I started to study, I started to it, I started to lay out in front of me. Um, so when you went to uh, Cortland, um, you played lacrosse there. Yes. And, um, and it seemed to me that that was a really important part of your life, that being athletic and, you know, putting in the work, that that started – it must have started much previous to that, but is that where it started to crystallize? Yeah, I, I think, as, you know, it was an interesting time um, for all of us. Uh, for me, it was, you know, learning how to be an athlete, mm -hmm. uh, learning out how to be somewhat of an academic. Uh, I much more, I, I had I had been more on the athletic side than the academic side. Mm -hmm. uh, Cortland wasn't the... The, the best of academic institutions at the time, but we had some amazing professors. Mm. And, uh, you know, the forte there was about physical education. And we made the best of it on the biological side of it. We, I learned, I took marine biology and field biology, and those lessons um, very few people got uh, with my plant collections and the insect collections. So <laughs> it, had a, it was a very formative time for me in understanding the biology of the world, and how it related to sport. The Red Dragons. The Red Dragons. The Red Dragons, they won, um, they won a title in like the mid-70s around did, that 1975. Were you over at the school then? Were you yeah. Up, you were on that team? There, yeah. Okay. See, now it gets interesting. Do, do you feel that being on a team that's standing there with the championship after your final game has some kind of long-term play in the end? I mean, Coach Wooden didn't win at that championship for like 16 years. Then he won 10 out of 12. But he'll tell you he was, a, he was always in pursuit of something more, that it just wasn't just winning the championship. That it's all these things. And when I hear you talk, it sounds a lot like it. It's, it's not as if you don't have championships, but you certainly understand that road. 
Well, we understand the road, and we also understand when you don't have championships. You know, if you look outside here, we've had Galaxy Championships, where I'm the chief medical officer in 2011, 12, and 14. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even smelled a championship since. And I always say in life, appreciate the hmm. championship. Appreciate the highlight, whether it be whatever that is, that you were, you had you were the star on that team or whether you get that part in that play or you mm -hmm. got that job that you wanted. What is your championship? And highlight that in your life and celebrate yeah. that moment because not every day in this life that we call human life is about championships. But when it happens, you must celebrate it, enjoy it, <laughs> nice. and take the lessons and, and enjoy it to the best possibility you can. From uh, Cortland, you go over to John Hopkins, and then is that where you start, you, you get involved in coaching? Correct. And they won a championship in like 78. Yes. When Were you part of that coaching staff? I was part of that coaching staff. Look out. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so it, was, those, it was yeah. an interesting time, um, you know, and, and working with Bob Scott and Henry Ciccaroni at the time, uh, being part of those staffs in 76 and 77 now 78 i already gone to medical school okay so i was part of the coaching staff but the particular year that i was there we we did not i wasn't mm. part of the of that stuff yeah of i was part of the staff but you saw the but i process. left yes yeah, you saw the process yeah. john hopkins um obviously has this great academic reputation but they're they're a power in uh in lacrosse right yeah and they have a long history of that yeah and for me that was another crossroad because I had come into coaching the – my job was to coach the B team. Mm. Um, but I did, it didn't start out that way. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the coaches that I was supposed to be the TA for, that's how it first started. His name was Willie Scroggs, who one day came to me and he says, Bert, the good news is – the good news is I'm going to be the next coach of University of North Carolina. The bad news is you're going to be the next coach <laughs> of our B team. Okay. So you got to try that on for size. I remember that day very That's well. How a lot of people get jobs. Yeah, and and my first, basically my first four months after graduating college, I'm a head coach of a B team of one of the major lacrosse yeah. traditions. Yeah, you are in America, and so we had two winning years, and the second winning year uh, was the winningest year in Hopkins B team history, and I was being recruited. Mm. to be coaches of other institutions and specifically Princeton University. Wow. So this is a crossroads. Yeah, it was a crossroads. And for me, one of those amazing moments sitting with Coach Scott in his office as he sat back with his pencil and he says, let me see, med school coaching, med school coaching, med school coaching. And he said, okay, I got it. I'll tell you this. I'll make a deal with you. You go to med school. You don't like it. You come back right here, and I'll get you a job as a coach. I wow, promise. Wow, that's fair. That's 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 a mentor. And that was that was the most amazing moment. What I learned from that moment was that's a mentor. How a mentor could sit back, how he could listen, process, speak at the right times, understand the needs of the mentee, and deliver. It's working in your best interest. Yes. Right? Right. Instead of his. His is to try to convince you to stay on as his coach. And those are the essence principles of being a leader that I've mm -hmm. learned. And that's what we promulgate with the win within, how mm -hmm. to teach people how to understand how to be a leader.
about what self-assessment is and understanding self-control and the ability to know <coughs> how to see yourself through other people and how you can embellish their lives. Um, so you, you hopped over to Washington University. Yes. And, and you had already, uh, so, th so, so you're getting close to closing out your medical training. Another mentor. O over at Washington? Uh, a mentor before Washington. But at Johns Hopkins, I work with a, a tremendous mentor. And I, I like to tell the story about the mentors mm -hmm. because so many of our listeners are looking for those people. You're mm -hmm. at those junctions in life where you need those people who have the wisdom and capability of influencing your life. Sure. That's part of the reality. That's the contract of being a mentor. And Dan Nathans at the time, he was a, a physician, also a Nobel laureate Wow. A, in genetics. Jeez. And oh, wow. the other thing I learned that in life, you want to be associated with major icons okay. and just live in the, in the splash <laughs> of them. He wrote me a letter and uh, instead, and I love to tell this story, that it all looks good. But my first application to medical school, I was rejected by seven medical schools. My second application, I was accepted by all seven medical schools. And a lot of it had to do, I think, with having the right mentors mm. to give you the right ability to project yourself, to guide you in the right things. And, and that letter from Dr. Nathans, the Nobel laureate, uh, really provided me that path. Hence, the, my, my really appreciation of mentors. The, um, <clears throat> then, then I think you went back to John Hopkins before UCLA, right? You said something, five years of residency at Hopkins. You said something about Hopkins, like it was like training to be a Navy SEAL or something along these lines. That yes. they really, that that really, you felt like once you came out of that, you're ready for any challenge. Well, Johns Hopkins had uh, in the medical arena, there was lacrosse, and then there was the medical <laughs> arena, and uh, it was really the foundation for American surgery, uh, the history, the tradition. So much of the techniques came out of Halstead and Osler and the big four at Johns Hopkins. Okay. And, and But part of that was this tradition of training you like a naval seal, that, that really eating was a weakness, sleeping was a weakness, <laughs> was really the, the themes that, that were promulgated amongst the residents. And I learned that there were 168 hours of the week and all of them were game to work. <laughs> that is, <clears throat> when I saw when I saw that, I thought there's some good training there. And now I can start to understand how he can hold all those positions. I still don't fully understand how you manage all of that, <clears throat> but I could see some of that training was taking place at John Hopkins and then um, at UCLA. And I, you know, was just intrigued by your relationship with Coach Wood, and um, and I kind of remembered that from when we first started talking. At Archer, one of the things that was interesting was I think he said um, that you didn't get the football or the basketball job, so the soccer job became yours. Had you had much experience with soccer prior to being the team? None. In fact, I hated soccer. Okay, <laughs> I hated soccer. <laughs> you know, it was uh, you know you're the young guy, and uh, the older guys would take care of basketball and football with the big traditions. You take care of soccer. Okay. <laughs> and I found the soccer guys, much like the lacrosse guys that I, I knew and had experience with, and it was easy for me to interrelate. And it just turns out that Coach Ziggy Schmidt, 
who since passed away last year, let him rest in peace, uh, a good friend of mine and who I attribute to my soccer career in, in soccer medicine, uh, really took me under his wing and taught me the game and, and I learned the medicine and it just turned out I came to UCLA in July and in December we won the national championship in wow. soccer. That was the same, was it 85 or whatever? Isn't that the same year they won the Rose Bowl too? It was the same I year. Think. So like with the it, Eric Ball. It was the Eric Ball team. Yeah. That we, it was actually wow. 1986. Would have been 86 Rose Bowl, but 85 season. Rose Bowl, yes. So you were there that year. Yes. That was a high point for UCLA. That was a high point for UCLA. They haven't seen success like that since. No. Um, that's why I say you have to appreciate championships, you know, to win the soccer NCAA championship, to win the Rose Bowl with Eric Ball yeah. hitting 220 yards. Yeah. Gaston Green, that was all part That's of that. Right, Gaston Green. Yeah, that was all part of that team. Wow. The the campus must have been alive. Oh, the campus was alive and, and back then it was the gutty Bruins. You know, we were smaller and smarter than the gutty little Bruins. That's what's that was like Coach's original team, sixty four or whatever. That's right. Coach Donahue was yeah. there and Donahue uh, was a, another great mentor uh, of mine. Uh, what, tell me about Coach Donahue a little bit. I think um he might be the winningest Pac-12 coach ever. I think he's kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometime because UCLA, you know, has a shadow of USC's football program over them. But Donahue was tremendous amount of consistent success. Incredibly intense leader, hmm. um, but an incredible methodology and intensity of the principles of leadership. Hmm. I really learned a lot from him, uh, and I loved his intensity. Wow. Uh, he was so focused, and uh, I, I was mesmerized with his ability to be so focused as he was. Yeah, he he, he was something. Um, around uh, this time, you joined the Santa Monica Orthopedic Group? Yes. Um, is this around the time you're, um, or had you been married prior to this? Got married in 1988. Okay, so a uh, lot, lot, lot's going on at this time. Yes, yes. Found my wife, Ruth. Uh, we married in October of 88. Uh, also a doctor, and uh, went on to have three kids. Had, was she a doctor prior uh, to, or was it while you guys were both, she was already a doctor by the time you met her? Well, the story be told, and here it <laughs> is, here it, it was, I was a young faculty, and this is what perhaps Grey's Anatomy was built upon. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, and she was the medical student, so it was a different time in the 80s. Sure. Uh, we didn't have some of the principles and the rules and the credos yeah. were different. Um, they had a rule that you couldn't, as a faculty, you couldn't date medical students, but in fact, you could marry them. So in oh. fact, no one knew that we were dating until we got engaged. Oh. And so everybody first knew about it was once we were engaged. Okay. All right. Well, you know. Hey, men used to run naked in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So we, we all we all make our... And three kids and 31 years later, we're still functioning. Um, you talk about passions in life, that they're important, that you can follow these passions, that it continues to keep you mobile, mentally mobile too. And uh, when did... So when did the thing where you started diving with the sharks start to happen? Well, I, you know, as a um, high school student and as a college student, uh, I dove in my own way. 
um, oh, okay. at the beach. You know, back yeah. at the beaches in Long Beach, New York, you had a jetty on both sides. Yeah. I owned the jetty. I knew everything that lived in the jetty. The sharks would come in and out. They'd eat the stri- striped bass that were there. So I had my own way of, of diving. I would spearfish. Um, <laughs> so I, I was like that figure who, who lived in the ocean. Everything is about the ocean and the organisms. So. Difference between Atlantic and Pacific? Very different. Um, it's a it's a darker ocean than the Pacific, not as blue. Yep. Waves aren't as big, uh, but just as many creatures, different creatures. It's, but you found a way once you're out here um, to find your way into the ocean out in the Pacific? Definitely. And, yeah. uh, you know, I made a commitment to myself that when I could find the time and the means of doing it, I would make it a hobby. And it's become so my that's, hobby. That's where it came in. And, and I'm very passionate about it. Your former school was um, Cortland. Asked you to come back for um, a graduation speech, and um, it seemed yeah. like you you overdid your speech a little bit by writing a book. Well, <laughs> what happened there? That's not quite the story, but uh, it was an interesting uh, story that I got a call one February, that was two thousand nine from the president of the university that I really didn't know. Hmm. And uh, because I hadn't been back, uh, I had no real contact for for years. Um, and I got a phone call and they said, uh, you have been nominated to receive a honorary doctorate of humane letters. And I said, oh. right, what's that? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea what it was. And... Um, and I was in a busy clinic that day, and and I went home. I said, Ruth, you know, they, they're nominating me for this something. I even forgot the name of what it was. And they said, oh, that sounds fun. And then we never talked about it. About three weeks later, I get a phone call. I said, well, you've been selected um, to receive the Doctorate of Humane Letters. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to read about it and understand what it was. And myself and one other person, Ann Dunwoody, who is the first woman four-star general. Wow. And the two of us uh, were receiving the honorary doctorate at the same time. And at the same podium, Chuck Schumer, the senator of New York, would be speaking as well. Look out. So there I am. I said, okay, you know, I've gone around to give lectures about knee surgery and meniscal and ligaments and all. But now I've got to talk to 12,000 people with a senator and a former... (laughs) Four-star general. general. And I got to have some game. (laughs) So I went ahead and and I I actually became really motivated. I never done anything like this before. And, and, you know, when I approached it like I do many things, I started reading about graduation speeches. But it gave me that opportunity to look at my notes that I've kept, impeccable notes throughout my career about different events and different conclusions and different things. And even in the face of Ann Dunwoody and Chuck Schumer, I gave my talk and at the end, everybody come over to me and they said, we loved it, we loved it, but where's your book? (laughs) I don't have a book. So I came away with the concept that, okay, next goal, I gotta write a book. Right, and and I said, well, there's a book that's written that says how to write a book for dummies maybe, you know, and I went around looking for that, no. So I went on this journey of, of how to write a book. You know, you have to write a proposal, you need an agent, you need a publisher, yeah. you need know, all those things. And, and there's a whole challenge and story around that, but consummated, as you said, in 2014 with Win Within. 
the um, part of the win within, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, humans and their evolution. Um, you talked about you went to the Kalahari Desert to as part of this research, right? To kind of um, what to get a glimpse of what it is that makes us who we are physically, if in effect. You know, I, 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 we mentioned it earlier, the intersection of the life of sport and the sport of life. Right. How is that? Why is it us humans think in terms of athletics? Why do we love sport? Why do we love yeah. to run? What it is in us that when we come to the finish line, the Boston Marathon, as I sat there in 2001, I was honored and I had the, the position of being right at the finish line in the Boston Marathon. And person after person coming off that finish line, the first thing they did was they raised their hands just like that. Mm -hmm. And we call the celebratory pose. And I learned at that moment that in life there's one winner, but there are 14,999 victors. And everyone had that same response when they mm. crossed the finish line. Mm. And I was intrigued by what is this concept? Where does it come from? What is this athleticism that's inside of it that's burning to come out when we hit that finish line? And whether it be the end of the Boston Marathon or that individual, that Special Olympics athlete, it's a celebratory pose that comes out stereotypically all the time. And I said it has to come from somewhere. And there's a population of Bushmen, mm -hmm. they're called Kosan Bushmen, that live there between South Africa and Botswana. And they've been living there for almost the whole time that Homo sapiens have existed. The Paleolithic period started about 100,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And as we became, as we came from Homo erectus, to Homo sapiens 100,000 years ago, we went from being these small hominids where we were prey, and all of a sudden, we evolved to become hunter-gatherers. It was there in the southern Kalahari that we really became survivors of the fittest. And so I was intrigued to look at how and where this came from, and where it comes from is the hunt. And the way the hunt starts is 5.30 in the morning as these young athletes, 13, 14, 50-year-old, come with the older, and they come with their spears and their bow and arrows, and they're sharpening the edges, and the hunting party gather. And mm -hmm. there I was as the party gathers, and we head out on the hunt. The hunt is about two hours. It's a slow jog or a walk, about 12-minute miles, and never want to go too fast. It's in the desert. It's 110 degrees. Yeah. You don't want to go too fast. You don't carry water. And you're headed out after the Impala. Wow. After about two hours, you get to the top of the canyon. And at this point, the anaerobic Impala can run no more. And there they are trapped at the edge of the canyon. The spears come out. The bone arrows come out. And three Impala are killed. Immediately, they have to rehydrate. And what they do is open the chest and drink the blood. Wow. So we have to carry the carcasses back to camp. Did you participate in this ceremony? Yeah. Wow. So not drinking the blood. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I'll be thirsty. <laughs> I'll walk right. slower. Okay. All right. So, and then you got to bring it all the way back. You bring it all the way back. And, uh, and therein lies the survivor of the fittest. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it, what happened here is we go out and we learn that you can't go too fast. And it came to that last hill. What happens? As we go up that last hill, we're two hours into it. It's hot. We're sweaty. But our endorphins go off. Mm. Something inside of us drives us up that hill to make the kill. And in making the kill, we, the bounty we achieve from the hunt is the food that makes us the survivors of the fittest. And for that, all these systems that exist in all of us, I don't care who you are, I have to just put a, a, a blinder on my eyes. I don't care who the individual is. But if I take you and I take you for a run and I do it day after day, you're going to feel better psychologically. Mm-hmm. Your blood lipids are going to go down. Your blood pressure will go down. You'll be healthier. Mm-hmm. You'll exclaim different things. You'll achieve a whole different mindset. You'll be more successful in life. And from that, we've learned that those are inherently part of us. That is our DNA. Mm-hmm. And those DNA, that is the legacy that comes from that hunter-gathering. We had talked about this right around the time you just released the book. And you were telling me that. And to that point, I'd been pretty consistent with getting workouts and that kind of thing. More so, I, didn't, I had an abstract reason why. Just I knew it, but that quantified it for me. And I know that I like really to the next level to where I make sure I made it every day. And it's until this point where my YMCA and the yoga has been take, taken away that it's made my, my mind work t- differently. Like suddenly I'm working just a little bit differently and now I have to go search those other places. And it is, it's like, it's part of our DNA to be physically active like that in order to, and I it's, think, it, to it, function it, our best. It's part of our DNA and it's part of our genomics, we call it. And now people always want to know and they ask, what's the benefit of exercise on us? Mm-hmm. And how does it affect aging? And there's numerous literature now that show that if we take a rat and we put them on a treadmill and they run every day, the hippocampus is larger. Mm. If we have them run every day and we have them do agility, whatever way we do it, not only is their hippocampus the larger but the prefrontal cortex is larger why is that important because we know that exercise is our only drug that impacts at this time impacts life and longevity impacts the quality of life and as i say our goal in life is to add life to your years that will add years to your life the plus 10 existence the plus 10 existence we call that that if you could add life to your years i will guarantee you will add to- years to your life you, so that's in in something roughly formula like 15 minutes extra exercising every 10 years of your life or every decade yes. something along these lines yes um and it you, has to be in different forms oh it could be you talked about yoga uh and you can talk about riding a stationary bike uh hiking walking yoga pilates swimming Mm -hmm. choose your weapon it it doesn't matter but i do think that we are programmed to walk 
and we're programmed to hike. Mm. And that's really part of our spiritual, physical, emotional existence. Uh, but exercise, going up hills, coming down hills, however you do it, if you do it on a treadmill, if you do it on a bike, um, whatever it is, a Peloton, um, do you, it. You um, had to, had to uh, become the patient for a while. But you had an accident, I think, um, biking followed by running. And, and and they came within a short amount of time, so that that had to challenge you a little bit. Well, I I hit I had some bad luck for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, I had I was hit by a snowboarder, had to have back surgery. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I I kind of changed my lifestyle. Before that, I they told me I couldn't run anymore. Okay. After that, and so I started biking. And it became like the story of Joe because over here, 12th in Arizona. So you got hit on the <laughs> snowboard and then you decided to bike. And then, oh, gosh. Yeah, and I was, I was riding on a Father's Day a few years ago. I was riding to the office. Uh, I can't run, so I'm going to ride my bike. And this old geezer coming out of the alleyway at 12th in Arizona didn't see me on his left oh, side and man. hit me and launched me. And, and fortunately, um, the bike was damaged, but I wasn't too damaged. So uh, I felt I felt like the, it was the story of Job at that point that that uh, I had to figure some other navigational path where I, I was going to hit by snowboarders or I was going to hit off my bicycle. <laughs> well, and, and I would imagine it made you, um, you know, more aware as a as a doctor at that time, with people re rehab you, you know, you intimately experienced it. Yeah, and and I think I, I have this philosophy of minimizing our risks. You know, you you've got to be responsible, focused, and everything we do, we have to figure out how to maximize benefits, minimizing risks in our approaches. Big Five Matrix is um, is it sounds that sounds similar in nature. Yeah, we we call it the Big Five, and and it's really five things that you have to do to be successful in life. That successful people always do and it starts with you are what you eat you drink and mm -hmm. you are what you eat drink think and do which means you run your life by eating well and you know people come up to me and they say well what's the best way to eat you know is it intermittent fasting is it eating paleo um, how best to do that and and I think there's probably not one way it's somewhere around a Mediterranean diet mm -hmm. why if you look at the top 10 longevity countries they're in they're in fish eating country, so mm -hmm. probably eating fish and some blend of a plant based approach is, is a great way to go. Um, you are what you eat, drink, think, and do. And in terms of minimizing the hazards, minimizing your alcohol intake, making sure, as we said, that we exercise. Mm -hmm. Number two, we talked about hope, optimism, and passion in mm -hmm. your lives. They're all interconnected. I think that everything you approach, you need to be passionate about. You need to be hopeful. Give other people hope uh, surrounded by that. Yeah. Number three is discovery and adventure. Live your life like you have something new. Maybe it's a new yoga class. Maybe it's a new climb, a new dive, a new career, uh, a new passion to run uh, sports stories with Denny Lennon. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever that is, be passionate about discovery and adventure. Yeah. Number four relationships you've got to have your home team and the relationships of your home team you need relationships at work mm -hmm. you need relationships around relationships relationships 
over time is what make, make people successful. Hmm. And number five, it's about character and doing the right thing as an old friend of mine, Clive Charles, who was the Olympic coach in Sydney said, do the right thing 100% of the time. Character counts every time, all the time. So that's what it is, the big five. It's Co coach Wooden would be quite proud of you because it does. It stands up to, the, you know, many of his principles of his pyramid of success and what that built towards, but they're woven in there um, kind of in a different way. And, it's, and, it, and it does. It just hits home with me on a lot of those. Yeah, I, I feel that for me, that's part of my role is to carry on the, the wooden legacy. Mm -hmm. And the big five really indoctrinate those pieces of, in my office and in my brain, is really impacted and imprinted with the pyramid of success. Um, I hope you don't mind if I bounce around a little bit. The Cliff Meadle? Um, Meadle. Cliff Meadle. Cliff Meadle story. Um, there's just a few things here that are, that are, <laughs> that are so inspirational, and, and uh, I'd love to get, them, get you to talk a little bit about them. Cliff Meidel is one of my favorite people of all times. Um, as a 20-year-old, he had been on a summer job and, on an excavation site, and he's working, and they're excavating, and he just comes upon this power line and gets electrocuted with 50,000 volts. Wow. Heart stops. My he, goodness. He gets resuscitated, and the lower portion of his body is burned such that we have to do 14 operations. 14. Myself and Dr. Malcolm Lesavoy, the plastic surgeon, operate on him. And he was an amazing kid. He was from Torrance, California, brought up like everyone else on a summer job, Athletic, but not really an athlete. And at that time, exactly that time, we had another patient by the name of Tim Daggett. Gymnast. And, and Tim Daggett, we all know about Tim because Tim is now the face of USA Gymnastics at the Olympics. For Commentary NBC. and so forth, yeah. But he won a gold medal in 1984 yeah. for the American team as a gymnast and was part of the UCLA team. And in 1987, while competing in the World Championships in Rotterdam, coming off the vault, he breaks his leg, has a horrible injury, and it goes on to injure his blood vessels, develop a compartment syndrome, and he comes back from Rotterdam for me to take care of. And we do several operations, and that's in November of 1987. And he wants to compete in the Olympics in Korea in 1988. In so we have between November and July, and we have to be able to qualify in Salt Lake City at the trials in April. So literally, we have from November to April, that six months, that he can compete in the trials. And uh, at that time, we do everything we can to get him ready. And one of the contacts he has is with Cliff Meidel. With Meidel. And what in, in, in wherever your space is, rehab and so forth? Yeah, they, okay. they come in contact with them. They're both active patients are rehabilitating. And Tim taught me something that I had never known before. And I said, Tim, we can't do this. It's not enough time. And he looks at me and he says, Doc, you've got to learn something from me. And he says, what's that? He says, you have to dare to dream. 
and he pointed his finger at me. Wow. And from that moment on, I learned the concept of daring to dream. Hmm. Dare to dream. And it resonated me in me, Jeez. and it resonated in Cliff Meidel. The same concept. And so Cliff Meidel, and that's the story we're telling, was an individual who, because of his legs, he's missing half of his knee, and they're covered with flaps, and he kind of limped a little bit. But he said, well, I can't really participate as an athlete, but I'm going to start rowing. And he became part of outrigger rowing mm -hmm. clubs and yep. rowed and rowed, much like Forrest Gump, uh, <laughs> and rowed and rowed and rowed and rowed until he made the Olympic team. What? In, in, in 1996, what? he made the Olympic team for Olympic kayaking. What the heck? And he didn't have any great accolades in winning anything, wow. no gold. But not the Paralympic Games, but the Olympic Games. Here was this handicapped individual competing Unreal. in the Olympic Games in rowing, and he made the team. That was in 1996. In year 2000, at the opening ceremonies in Sydney, Sydney yeah. He was selected to carry the Olympic flag. And that one moment in that one stadium, wow. I was there watching. And when he looked over, carrying that flag oh and all those memories of all those 14 procedures and the concept of daring to dream came forward. Jeez. And there he was. And here's an individual who truly was not the winner. He never won gold or silver. But he was a victor, and a victor in his journey. Jeez, that's intense. That is unbelievable. Yeah, great story. Wow. Okay, um, life of sport and sport of life, and and when you when you said that, one of the things I thought about. We also have another guest that's going to come up who um, was a rear admiral in charge of NATO security in Kabul on the backside of Afghanistan, and he started setting up. Uh, groups to come over to teach sport and using sports as a diplomatic kind of tool. Um, you've been at the middle of that on a few different things. I think one was um, in Korea right after 9-11. Yeah, we had an amazing moment. It was um, the World Cup in, in 2002. It was September 11th. We all know what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and we're getting ready for the World Cup and... Um, Part of the World Cup indoctrination was flying to New York and going to Ground Zero hmm. with with the fire department survivors. Living that experience mm -hmm. was just amazing. Being in in yeah. that environment, and then we all flew uh, from New York uh, to Seoul, Korea, and we were greeted there by the 82nd Battalion, who was basically adopted us the whole time. Cool. As well as 25 other State Department and CIA agents. Okay. Uh, again, we're the first, now the first American asset that was competing internationally. And again, when you look at it harm's way, and as, as they said, I asked the question, why are you guys here? And they responded in their khaki pants and blue shirts. There's a clear and present danger. Jeez. And so we went on and uh, we arrived in Seoul, Korea. And they say it was a shark. No shark. Okay. <laughs> okay. Be like, I got this. Not a clear, you guys, I got you guys this. can go home. N not a clear and present <laughs> danger. But we arrived there. The airport was like I've never seen. 
There were tanks everywhere and turrets were pointing in different directions. There were Chinook helicopters all over the sky. And we come out and we had these battalions of both American and South Korean soldiers. And we had a walk between them all the way through the airport to the curbside where the buses would greet us. And there were four helicopters circulating at all times following us everywhere we went. We got to training, and, and there the CIA had, had all their tools, and they were sorting out chemical issues, nuclear issues, um, biologic issues. It was like a world that was I've never seen. Wow. And uh, the games went on in a, in a very uncomplicated way. Uh, but for us, it really changed life for us. Yeah. Uh, that we got to know our, our the 82nd Battalion that helped us through that uh, brought us up to the DMZ, you got to experience that. Uh, so again, you know, for me, I, I don't speak lightly when I look at the concept of the life of sport and the sport mm -hmm. of life and how they're intersected. Iran and uh, USA uh, were not on diplomatic terms. And I think it was, was it World Cup that you went to in France in 1998? 1998, in Lyon, uh, France, we play Iran. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, no diplomatic relations, and we spent the whole day before the game arguing how we're going to present gifts to one another. <laughs> it was a very unique moment in time. And again... And that's a tradition, of course, in, in, in World Cup play. That's right. We and, and FIFA not wanting to participate in us giving flowers and gifts back and forth, spent three or four hours deciding, and at first they said no, and then ultimately said yes. So it was the first time of all the games that before the game we presented each other other's gifts. It was a, a memorable moment. Wow. 1998, Lyon, France, World Cup. You, um, you met two presidents that I saw. I wonder if there's more. There's probably more. Um, <laughs> President Reagan? Yep. Would yeah. you, tell, tell, tell how you met him. Well, we had the opportunity <laughs> here in... Um, L.A. after his presidency in 1988, he came back to live life in Bel Air yeah. with Nancy. And uh, he had a ranch up there at Refugio Beach where he fell from a horse, injured his rotator cuff, and I had an opportunity to take care of him. And really? that was really... Uh, you, treated, you treated the Gipper. Treated the Gipper. And uh, it started a, a long-lasting uh, relationship that I, I had with him Wow. Uh, from... Really, nineteen late nineteen um, eighty eight until around ninety three ninety four when he began to uh, yeah. distance himself. Um, how'd you meet President Clinton? President Clinton, uh, interestingly enough, back to World Cup two thousand ten. Okay. That ninety first minute optimism. Yeah. Uh, he was there with the U.S. Oh. team. Uh, in South Africa, and he came down. And he spent a couple hours with us in, in the in the locker room, and I have a great photograph because when he gave a speech, uh, his finger went up, and he said, "Boys, the most important thing in life is always optimism." And that photograph I have w of him and I, with his raising his finger, uh, was all about optimism. Wow. So. That's how I learned that lesson. What other presidents have you met? That's it. Really. Oh, I thought That's you were. It. I was yeah. about to go. Yeah. No, no more. <laughs> um, 
what was uh what happened in it was Iraq 2004 something about you had to fly through Crete or something along these lines and you were yeah we had in uh, the Olympics in uh, 2004 oh, okay, in Greece <clears throat> I was working for IOC and FIFA um, interestingly enough we're at war with Iraq and the Olympics mm -hmm. are going on and at that time the Iraqi team uh, couldn't fly from Baghdad to Athens mm. or Crete. They had to go by vehicle across into uh, Syria okay, and then come down to Amman, Jordan, and they could fly from there. And they weren't able to bring a doctor, and they weren't able to bring any medical supplies. So they show up oh. to Heraklion, which is a small town in where the venue, the stadium was in Crete, yeah. And so they show up with no medical equipment, no doctor. <laughs> what? And I'm the person the who Olympics. is the venue medical director for Crete. And so what do they have? They show up. They had a tough journey. They have no doctor, no medical equipment. And what do they have? Optimism. An American, <laughs> American doctor who's got to take care of them. And, and they look at me. I look at them. And I said, whoa, this is going to be... Uh -huh. <laughs> a, a really an interesting thing and they treated me extremely coldly in the beginning but one of the most amazing moments about 10 days later they played australia and they beat australia and after these games in the olympics we're always doing doping control and there's usually a few people left from the respective teams so there it was myself and the iraqi team uh, and it was just at this time two players an administrator and doctor and we're the only people in the van and they were so excited they began to sing and clap in the van at one o'clock in the morning as we're driving through the greek countryside and i started clapping and singing with them oh, and here it was an amazing olympic moment two countries at war yeah it's about competition and we're singing and clapping exclaiming the victory so that oh, was an amazing olympic moment compared that with what was so disappointing as a youngster and I had such idealism about the Olympics still do but our boycott in 80 and the subsequent boycotts in 84 and it was that's the one place where you can see you know these citizens from those parts of the world that will compete and honor and that that's really what the Olympic spirit is about you know sure the is. Olympic spirit is about learning that it's process over outcome learning that it's it's taking part rather than the win that it's the journey of the destination yeah. and if there's something that we really want to convey to all of us especially now mm -hmm. are those basic principles as we go through this crisis at the moment i um don't, if you don't mind i got a couple things um epigenetics um can you explain that a little bit it seems like one thing I've <clears throat> always admired about you, whether it's that innovations in technology or data sets or genetic mapping or artificial intelligence, you always seem to um, adapt. And then somehow you move to the front of the, the pack and being able to um, help the rest of us understand it. Epigenetics is, is a fascinating field, been around since the 60s. Mm. You know, as we, we know about Watson and Crick and describe the genome and well, we basically have these 23 chromosomes mm -hmm. and then we have the ability to 
repair and impact these genes over time. You can injure the genes with chemicals and radiation, or you can enhance those genes um, by uh, hormeism, it's called. Hormeism. Okay. Hormeism is, is the concept of, of the changes that go on in our body that positively influence the genes hmm. through epigenetic pathways. And what that means, it's turning on these genes. These hormones that exist are called sirtuins, S-I-R-T-U-I-N-S. And these are the That's products of epigenetics that turn on certain genes preferentially. Back to those rats that are running on that treadmill mm. and the brains mm -hmm. are getting bigger and stronger mm -hmm. and our hearts are becoming cleaner, devoid of lipids and cholesterol. It's all in the epigenetics that are influenced by the exercise. Turning on the right genes, having the, the players and the cells and the growth factors all in place. So when we turn on those genes, we get the positive benefit. And that's really where we're focused now in understanding how we could affect the genome in a positive way. Okay. Scientists are understanding these processes, which genes can do what and how, and also splicing out other genes. And again, that's that genetic engineering wow. that we're seeing as some of these big innovations going forward. But the epigenetics are, are basic because back to you are what you eat, drink, think, and do, in and of itself, no big technology, you in fact can influence your epigenetics through this concept that we call hormeism. Okay. Uh, tech, um, newer technology as it's going to assist you in what was your you know traditional job of knee repair or replacement and the like. I think I heard you talking about how it can really <clears throat> specify how you might either replace a knee, hip, what have you, robotics. Yeah, we're in a time of, of fantastic innovation here, and it's, it's really interesting we're, we're dealing with this, the challenges of this crisis. At the same time, there's so many great innovations right now. We have robotics, 3D printing. Uh, we have artificial intelligence, uh, big data sets being evaluate, evaluated, and now regenerative medicine and orthobiologics all of these things going off and all relating to our ability to add resistors to that one semiconductor and allow it to compute at greater and greater exponential rates, what we call Moore's Law. And so we're seeing all this technology that's floridly developing around us uh, that is really taking us to the new levels. And again, just a few weeks talking about this and the importance of this in relationship to human beings in a humble way right now, we're humbled mm. by that. Mm -hmm. Even though we have these computers, <clears throat> these technologies, semiconductors, these resistors, we're humbled, taken to our knees by a virus. Wow. I always, <clears throat> whenever I talk to you, I'm both inspired and ready to do great things and exhausted. <laughs> My brain never works so hard. <laughs> <coughs> Don't worry, I got some dumb stuff coming up. <laughs> but I got a couple uh, hard questions for you and then some easy ones. Good. Okay? Good. Most impressive athlete you've been around. I told you these were going to be difficult. You know, for me, the most impressive athlete uh, I've been around, 
Um, it's hard to say the most impressive because there are so many mm, I would imagine. impressive athletes who have impressed me <clears throat> with their abilities. But people like David Beckham, uh, who who in many ways was a wizard. Obviously, the women know him as a wizard of <laughs> of his ability to uh, woo. woo everybody and his uh, on camera, off camera, mm -hmm. uh, and spice and the like. Um, uh, Tiger Woods, mm. for me, uh, it was is just beyond understanding. I was asked to <coughs> follow him around at Riviera some 12 or 13 years ago. Yeah, six ten in the morning. I'm on the on the gr in the practice green, and uh, he's hitting one after another from 15 feet in the hole. It was amazing. I, it was almost robotic how he can do that. Mm -hmm. And then something happened as the fog rolled over. Uh, the caddy brought him into about 10 feet, and he sat there, put three balls in front of him, and put his left hand over his eye, his left eye. As he hit the ball, you saw him count one, two, and after one, two, he looks up and he rims the top of the hole. Next ball, hits the ball, one, two, looks up, he rims the top of the hole. Third ball, one, two, rims the top of the hole. Tiger Woods was teaching himself the imagery of the edge of the hole. He wasn't learning how to hit the ball in the hole. It was like a basketball player just hitting the rim or a soccer player hitting the post. It was like I've never seen before. He was teaching himself the negative imagery. Wow. Now, that in and of itself, what the if, heck? if that's not a superstar or someone who has these incredible powers, to even think about that, let alone Jeez. practice that, for me, it was amazing to see. Um, <clears throat> he one time I went to go watch a golf clinic in Orlando, <clears throat> and he was hitting balls. And he said, "I think Buick was a sponsor, so there's an open driver's window, and there's a big tree right in the middle." And he goes, "Let's." And there's car over here, car over both sides. And he said, "Let's take the ball around the and go." And he would put it in the window, 200 yards out, and then he would go this way around it. <laughs> I went, incredible. What's, what, wait, what's going on? <laughs> like, yeah, that guy. Um, how about most uh, impressive coach? You know, I... I and I say impressive for a reason, because as others, I ask different questions, but you, I'm always interested in what impresses you, inspires. I, I have to say Coach Wooden. Mm. Um, I, you know, again, there are a lot of great coaches I have been around um, um who have taught me a number of great things, but mm -hmm. I think Co Coach Wooden is really yep. in rarefied earth and air uh, in terms of his ability to, uh, with poetry, with philosophy, with dictums, with mandates, <laughs> yeah. uh, so powerful on so many different human levels. Uh, you got a team that impressed you that worked together particularly well, fine-tuned machine? Yeah, you know, there are so many great teams. You know, you go back, uh, you've learned from the New York Knicks of the 60s. Mm. Dave Bradley, Monroe, <laughs> DeBusher, sure. Reed. Uh, Phil Jackson what I, coming I, off the bench. Phil Jackson coming off the bench. Mm -hmm. What I loved about that team is, is, and I love about any team that could function as a team, mm. that really are trying to 
not shine on themselves, their own ego. We look for those characteristics in our, <laughs> in our icons today, and I, we don't see it. One of the problems today is that we don't have iconic individuals that we can look and say, I love that team mm. because they're unselfish. They want to work together. There's nothing about I. There is no I in team. Mm. You, have a, you mentioned that play in the World Cup. Is there a play, one particular play that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, um, I think for me right now it's Tiger Woods winning the winning the Masters last year, hitting that uh, he's down uh, 14 holes and mm -hmm. he hits that last putt. Uh, for me, that was I don't think I've been more electrified by one play, uh, that one ball and the ending of that. And as he hit that ball into the hole, what he did with his arms went up and in slow yeah. motion. The celebratory pose went up. That's something else. And you, you just saw <coughs> his whole life from his wife to his kids to his problem with, yeah, with all opioids to his problem with that arrest video. And to see all that the surgeries physical, he went through. All the surgeries he went through. And, and to realize that this iconic athlete is an iconic human being. Yeah. And it's just that one hole, that one moment really showed that. All right. <clears throat> Get ready, Bert. <laughs> We're going to dumb it down a little with some TV show questions. Choose one of the following three as a show, uh, your favorite show. Quincy, MD, Jack Klugman, we remember. Mm -hmm. Emergency. Mm -hmm. Or Shark Week. Shark Week. Okay. <laughs> Understood. Easy. Well, let's try this. <laughs> let's do another one. Um, choose one. ER, mm -hmm. General Hospital, mm -hmm. or Shark Week. Shark Week. Okay. All right. All right. All right. You get the pattern. Th this is going to get a little tougher right now. Sharknado. Ooh. Shark Tank. Uh-huh. Or Shark Week. Shark Week. Oh, <laughs> man. All right. So we're going to close out our TV show you, questions. You, you know, you, you know your, your <coughs> yeah. guest. Which show, which show jumped the shark the worst? All right. Was it the Brady Bunch when they brought around Cousin Oliver? Was it the Flintstones when they brought over Kazoo? Or was it actually Happy Days when Fonzie threw on his skis and literally jumped over the shark? I think it was Fonz. Very good. You passed that easily. <laughs> All right, here comes some rapid fire for you, Bert. You ready? Yeah. What was the first pet you had? Uh, first pet was a, um, was a dog, an Airedale dog. Name? Chips. Chips. First car? Mustang, Ford. Ooh. Burn more oil than it did gas. <laughs> Favorite sports team as a kid? Um, the uh, New York Yankees. Okay. You had a nickname as a kid? Uh, it was Treb. Treb? Where'd that come from? Just for playing with the letters. <laughs> T-R-E-B. Oh. B-E-R-T. You're playing with the treble. And no. The uh, favorite board game? Uh, favorite board game has to come down to Scrabble. Mm. Favorite main dish? Maine as in the state? Lobster. No, no, no. <laughs> first, that's a good, that's a first answer. Now your favorite uh, Maine entree here. Yeah, I, I still stay lobster. You stay lobster? Fair yeah. enough. Um, favorite dessert? Um, my favorite dessert has to be carrot cake. Mm. Favorite movie? Uh, favorite movie is uh, Jimmy Stewart, What a Wonderful Life, mm. Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. Favorite musical group? Uh, has to go to be the Beatles. Yeah. Favorite author? 
Uh, favorite author goes right back to John Wooden. Mm, solid. Favorite professional athlete? Favorite professional athlete is, and I'll answer this in a very simple way, are all the professional athletes. <laughs> hmm. well, um, I think I know this answer, but let's, call it, let's say this. Where specifically did you meet your wife? In the A level of uh, the CHS building at UCLA. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. What was your first date? Uh, it was in the hallway uh, in the basement of UCLA. <laughs> All right. And um, what's your favorite quote? Uh, my favorite quote is, um, my very favorite quote is, is from John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Mm -hmm. It's not about what your country can do for you. Mm. It's what you can do for your country. Mm -hmm. And and I think in those words that the legacy of JFK really has impacted people like myself mm -hmm. because it's that empowerment that we have to always remember that if we lose that as human beings to empower the individual to be the best they can, mm -hmm. to challenge them, to challenge what they're doing, to look into their own eyes, to look into their own lives and really develop their own mission, their own vision, their own plan, their purpose in life really comes from that one quote, that one moment. Mm. And then from that one quote came and it changed human life through his quote at Rice University mm -hmm. when he said in 1961 that we are going to put a man to the moon and have him come back safely mm -hmm. by the end of the decade. And when he passed away in 1963, he had no knowledge what a lunar excursion module would be, nope. how to go about doing that. The discovery and adventure of and the teamwork and the steps of the Mercury missions, of the Gemini missions, and the Apollo, both successes and failures. And to reach that July 29th, 1969, and to reach the moon in that way, as Neil Armstrong stepped on, is like none other. Like none other. Um, speaking of none other, you know, um, as impressive of a person as you are, and it's inspired I am by you, I have to, my most heartfelt, feelings really revolve around my children and knowing that both of them came to you injured and then have gone on to lead these lives that allow them, you know, to do great things because you fixed them and we're not the only ones. There's all of these people you've touched personally and also philosophically and by extension. Um, but it's with great gratitude. I say thank you for doing the interview today and I say thank you for being you and helping my family. I have a, one more important quote. Please. That we'll end with, if I may. Please. And it was a quote by my my favorite of all time, JFK. Mm -hmm. And he said that the word, the Chinese word for crisis is two strokes. One is for danger and one is for opportunity. So out of crisis, yes, it's dangerous. But out of the crisis comes the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And for us today, we have to look at the opportunities that come from this adversity. Mm -hmm. Danger and opportunity. And with that, and have a great that. evening. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Bert. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, Bert. Good. Wow. 
Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit heroesmovementusa.org for more information. Sports Stories, along with thousands of people across the country, also supports the My Stuff Bags Foundation, a nonprofit that provides traumatized children with new belongings and new hope. Learn more at mystuffbags.org. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Christine Jimbo and Marley Rice. Sports Stories is edited by Bob McCall. Additional staff include Ray Castro, Teresa Dolan, Jake Downey, Carlos Haro, and Buck Magic Lennon. Check it out, Buck! <laughs>